Well, good morning, Fellowship Church, and happy Sunday. This is one of those cool winter days where we have blue skies and sunshine and fresh snow. How cool is that? We can, we can be grateful for that occasionally, right? Hey, as we get started in worship this morning, let me ask you a question intended to kickstart a little reflection. The question is, why are you here? Why are you here today? Whether you are in person or online, why are you here? I suspect some of you are here, ready to lean in, perhaps eager to join in the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, and the time in which we open the Word of God and seek for it to be a word to us this morning. Maybe you're here, ready to lean in. Maybe you're here on autopilot, because that's what you do on Sunday mornings, and so you're not really all that thoughtfully here. You're just here. Maybe you're here because someone made you be here this morning. Uh, maybe you don't know why you're exactly here this morning. I'm asking these questions, however, because I think it's fitting to the text we're going to lean into this morning, a story of Nicodemus at night, kind of like Nickelodeon at night, except this is Nicodemus at night. He comes to Jesus in one of the most famous passages of Scripture, John chapter 3, and he comes under the cover of night, perhaps because he has a desire for privacy, perhaps because he fears criticism or something else, but what's remarkable in this story is that Jesus receives him wonderfully, and they have a wonderful conversation that we get to lean into and listen to. It's a picture of the way that God continually welcomes us as we come. And so I want to invite you to hear that kind of invitation from our scriptures, Isaiah 55, a similar posture to the one that Jesus takes towards Nicodemus in this story. Hear these words as our call to worship this morning. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on that which is not bread and your labor on that which does not satisfy? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Listen. Listen to me, says the Lord, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen, that you may live. I invite you to stand, and let's join in worship this morning.
You may be seated. One of the gifts that we receive in worship, and perhaps it's a surprising one, is that when we focus our attention on Jesus, when we behold him, look upon his face, so to speak, we discover he was already looking in our direction. It is Jesus who seeks us even as we seek him. And we love because he first loved us. That's good news, isn't it? It is in this love that we rest and we come into his presence confidently, letting ourselves be seen and known and guided and taught. This morning, we're gonna use the words of Psalm 139 as our collective prayer to our loving and all-knowing and ever-present God. The reference is there on the screen and the words will also be on the screen, but if you would like to look it up um, in one of the Bibles that's in your chairs, it'll be the same thing, but the words will be on the screen. Um, this last week, as a worship team, we used this prayer together, and so we invite you to join us in noticing as we took time to pause, um, how is God speaking to you through the words of this psalm? What is your comfort level with being known in this way, being searched in this way, always having God's presence with you no matter where you go? Um, is that something that um, is a comfort or is that something that you resist and pay attention to that and notice that as we pray? So let's join in these words together. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. Hear these words now from 1 John chapter 2. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Sisters and brothers in Christ, the peace of Christ be with you. We invite you to also join us this week in learning a new song. Um, we're going to be uh, doing this one in worship a few times uh, coming up here, so we'll, you have many opportunities to practice it. So we just invite you to join with us in whatever way feels comfortable and right to you as you learn this song. I will invite you at a certain point to clap along with us during the song, but if you'd like to sing along um, or just listen, you, um, you do you <laughs> as we worship God together.
to the Lord today, and we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Once again, good morning, Fellowship Church. The Lord be with you. Glad to gather with you for worship this morning, whether you are in person with us here in the sanctuary or with us online. We're glad to be together. My name is Ross Dielman, one of the pastors here at Fellowship Church, where together our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. Today, I want to envision the way that we live into that mission together, kind of like a bullseye where there's outer... Uh, rim area, and then there's stuff closer to the center. On the further out edges, one thing I want to make you known of is that if you are just testing the waters among us here at Fellowship, not yet a member, curious about what it'd be like to become a part of our fellowship, we have in the near future coming up a class that we call Discover Fellowship Cafe, and you would be surely welcome to join in on that. It is on Wednesday nights in February, starting February 2 then 9 and 16, you can sign up and simply learn about the church. And it is, of course, an opportunity to become a member at the end of it if you would like to join. So that's one way. Another is that if you are among us and you have someone in your family or yourself or your kids uh, who might be seeking baptism, take note that March 13 is our next baptism date. And if you are looking at that being a sacrament you want to celebrate in your family, uh, please make yourselves known to us. For both of those, new members or baptism, you can send emails to fellowship info on our bulletin. There's our address there. Or make yourself known to Nate or I or lots of ways to get plugged in. Uh, secondly, a little closer into the center, I want to celebrate with you and... Uh, uh, you will be receiving in the mail this week uh, a letter that is our kind of end-of-year giving letter, but we put tons of photos on them because we want to celebrate our life together. So this will be in your inbox uh, in the near future if you've been giving to Fellowship Ministries. And when you do that, you support the many, many things that happen in this church, in our ministries, and our mission. And we just want to say thank you uh, for your partnership in the gospel and we're glad uh, to be doing that together. And of course, others can join in. If you've never given before, you can do so. And you'd get a cool letter if you did that. But uh, today, a fun way to celebrate the giving that happens to Fellowship Church is that we have our snow melt, which is new this year. It's funded by the giving of the church. Uh, but on both porches, uh, even though it's snowy and icy out there, we have snow melt in place. That and a bunch of other things represented by the photos uh, are the things that happen when you give to Fellowship Church, and we're grateful to be in this together with you. 
Last but not least, and closest to the center, you might say, is our nomination process for our consistory. Consistory is the term we have for the leadership body of our congregation. People sign on to that for a certain time period, and then, of course, they step out and new people come in. And so if you would like to nominate yourself or uh, someone else, or if you would simply like to learn what it's like to be a part of the consistory of Fellowship Church, there's a link in the bulletin. It was also emailed in our at-home email. If you're online, you can find it there. And there's a web page that'll help you learn all about that, and particularly how to recommend folks for this next nomination process. And please don't assume that someone else will do it. Uh, it would be helpful if you have someone in mind uh, to, to recommend for that. At this time, I'd like to invite our kids who are going to uh, head out to join Betsy and Emily and others in activities out there. You are welcome to sneak out the back door. And as we uh, continue in worship this morning, I invite you to stand and we will sing together to God be the glory. be with you, Fellowship Church. If you were a fly on the wall of our worship planning team the last couple months, you would have been startled off the wall at one point or another, likely, by the exclamation from someone on the worship planning team, who dat? Because every single time we mention who is this man, the title of our series, I can't help but think, who dat? which is a claim or a, a, a phrase that I borrow from the New Orleans Saints football fans who ha have that famous chant about who dat, or maybe it's from Adam, that you know, infamous film uh, by, oh, featuring Adam Sandler called Waterboy, you know, one of the best uh, in cinematography. 
But it's a question that we will be asking uh, for the next couple months. Who is this man? We started with the proclamation of John the Baptist saying that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world a couple weeks ago, thanks to uh, Pastor Ross, who uh, went to check to see our confirmation friends, uh, punting for me. Uh, I gave him a little hand clap publicly to say thank you uh, for covering uh, for me a couple weeks ago. I was uh, tested positive on Sunday morning at 6.30 a.m. roughly, and so he had about an hour to prepare for the sermon, uh, and I'm really grateful for him. And I also wanted to say thank you uh, to the Congregation of Fellowship Church uh, for your prayers and well wishes that many of you offered over the last couple weeks. Thank you. But uh, we kicked off with that punted sermon by Pastor Ross two weeks ago, and then last week we considered Jesus as the life of the party, uh, the one who turned water into wine at that famous wedding in Cana. And this morning, we want to consider that Jesus is the light in the dark places of our lives and in the dark places of this world. You know, a few years ago, I was uh, noticing that Becca was getting a little worked up as she looked at her phone on the couch during our normal evening routine, and I'm like, hun, what are you getting so worked up about? Sheepishly, she said, well, actually, I'm, I'm looking at the Holland Sentinel app on my phone, and I got caught reading the, the comments below the articles, and some of the p- comments are kind of getting me all worked up inside. I'm like, what are you reading the comments for? You know, who, you know who writes comments on the bottom of the Holland Sentinel page, don't you? Well, sorry if some of you write comments on the bottom of the Sentinel page. <laughs> But they tend to be some extreme views, you might say, and of course you're going to get a little worked up. Uh, I know, she said, but it's just so fascinating how people articulate themselves. And I got to confess, she's right. A couple years later, I find myself too enamored with the stupid comment section on not only the Holland Sentinel app, but also on Facebook social media posts, on uh, the blogs that I read. The comment section can be the the, the below the iceberg uh, of time spent on distracted reading time. I wonder if it's because I'm curious, you might say, the generous word might be, that I'm curious to get to know people and the way in which they're conversing with one another reveals something about who they are. This morning, I wanted to invite us to kind of get into the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, a private conversation that we have the chance to listen in on from afar. Maybe it's like going to a restaurant and hearing a conversation that tips your ears or even in the workplace that uh, you're not a part of, but that you get to listen in on. It's my hope that somehow as we listen in on this conversation between Nicodemus Nicodemus and Jesus, that we might be able to better answer the question, who is this man? We're going to look at this story in a minute, uh, and when we do, I invite you as we're reading to look for some of the metaphors, the illustrations, the, the, the ways in which Jesus tries to explain himself, even circle them, and maybe you can match me uh, and the, the couple that I am going to draw out for us this morning. We'll look at three of them, um, but let's take a look at the word and see what Jesus has to say to us this morning. Before we do, let's pray. God, uh, we ask that your Holy Spirit might come. As we open this, your word, we ask that you might illumine our hearts, that you might shine into the darkness of our lives, and that the good news of Jesus Christ might be made known to us. It's in his name that we pray, amen. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, 
a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said, How can anyone be born after growing old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh. What is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, the wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses was lifted up, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of the Lord. His curiosity got the best of him, didn't it? He heard the rumors about Jesus, the signs that he had performed, the claims that were being made of him by John the Baptist, the upheaval that he certainly caused in the temple, and the frustration that his colleagues in the establishment had of him. He couldn't take it any longer. The comments section would no longer do. He was going straight to the source of the news, Jesus Christ himself. But to be sure the neighbors wouldn't see, he, to make sure that no one knew exactly what he was doing, he set up the interview at night. No cameras from the paparazzi could focus in, and he could slide through the streets of Jerusalem, the normally bustling streets, without being noticed, and hood on, inconspicuous. This was a covert operation. Why? Well, Nicodemus wasn't just an anybody in Jerusalem. Nicodemus was a somebody. The gospel writer John includes his name, which is kind of unusual for the beginning of this gospel. We will soon hear the story of two people he has private conversations with, a woman from Samaria and a man at the pool of Bethesda left unnamed. Nicodemus was named because he was known. The readers would know who he is. He was a religious man, a man of the cloth, you might say, a leader among the Jews, according to this text. He was part of the establishment. He had respect and status, maybe even a member of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the Jews, if you will, because we know in a later occurrence that he was the one that said, Jesus deserves a fair trial. 
Nicodemus, in the words of Frederick Buechner, it was a VIP with a big theological education and a status to uphold. Nicodemus had a lot to lose if he was going to identify with this Jesus character, if he was going to hitch his wagon onto this horse, especially this renegade prophet he knew as Jesus. It makes me wonder, do you see it as risky to identify with Jesus? Are you always proud to call yourself a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Christ in every aspect of your life? Many years ago, uh, or for many years, I should say, many years ago as well, I served as a youth pastor at a local church. And one of the joys of that job was the chance to walk alongside of students, middle school and high school students, as they grew up and matured through adolescence to, to dialogue with them about the important matters of faith, what it meant to be a Christian, and how we follow Jesus and what that means for us. I had a pair of 10th grade boys that I befriended one year. These boys never went to youth group. They rarely went to what we had was Sunday school, but they were usually at worship on Sunday mornings with their parents, and they were very regular in our weekly lunch meetings. You see, I would go to their school and pick them up for lunch, and then we would fly to the local fast food restaurant only to consume food as fast as we can and fly back to the school, you know, because you had uh, 35 minutes to not only pick them up and get them to lunch and back, uh, so we'd come flying in at the very last moment. Most of the time in this 34-minute bustle of uh, food consumption, we just chatted, talked about life, caught up on what were the happenings of the week at school or in sports. But on occasion, we got to scratch below the surface and consider some of the deeper things of life. One day, uh, during one of these moments where we were going a little deeper, I mustered up the courage to ask what I felt like was a little bit more of a courageous question for me at the time. And I said, you know, guys, we... We, we seem to like each other well enough, or at least you like my car that takes you to lunch. But uh, we, we have a respect for one another. We engage. We've been doing this for a long time. And I can't help but just wonder, what, what, you know, why, why not come to youth group with me? Why not join me on Sunday nights with all of uh, the folks from church? Now, I have a rule, by the way. I had a rule, and I still have a kind of good rule, I think, in life. And when I'm having a serious conversation with someone, I always say that uh, my rule is that there's no, in the words of Ross Dealman, no BS, no bologna sandwiches. You know, if you don't want to answer a question, that's fine. Just say no, but don't fabricate something. Give me the truth or just don't answer, which is a totally, both are legitimate options, and I don't mind either of them. And so this kid was courageous and told me the truth that day. He said, you know, I'm not exactly sure why I don't come to youth group, but I, I get a little worried maybe sometimes that if I go to youth group all the time, I'll be known as one of those church kids. And I'm not sure how that's going to play with my friends at school. I commend the boy for being so honest with me, and uh, I, he knew that that wasn't what I was hoping for as his youth pastor, but I'm really grateful for his honesty that he offered to me that day. 
It also makes me so impressed with so many of the students here at Fellowship Church, students who not only come to worship but are involved in various aspects of the ministry of fellowship, not just youth group but other things uh, as well. Especially impressed with the confirmation students, this is a side note by the way, uh, that are going to be joining uh, our consistory tomorrow night to offer their testimonies as the consistory welcomes in some new members uh, into our uh, midst here. But that 10th grade boy's question or uh, response to my question has been lingering with me for a while because it makes me consider how often I'm also a little bit bashful about, about my faith. Do you ever find yourself hesitant to claim allegiance to Jesus or maybe allegiance to the church in society today? Have you ever wondered if you're afraid of what it might cost you relationally with some of your friends? Nicodemus understood the risks of following Jesus. He knew that it would cost him not only his, his some uh, vocational status, but also status within the community and his relationship with others. And so he came to Jesus in the darkness, private, alone, under the shadow of his own control. And the readers are left unsure whether or not Nicodemus actually received the light of Christ in the darkness of that night. I said we're going to point out three metaphors, and that's the first one, and that light, the light of Christ calls to us in the midst of the darkness of our lives. Did you notice how the conversation, the actual conversation, though, started in that night? Nicodemus, I think, seemed to have a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. Rabbi, he said, teacher, you know, a guy like me. You got some good stuff going on with those signs that I see that are pointing to God. Obviously, I, being a teacher of the law, know that those are from God. So let's talk man to man, theologian to theologian, rabbi to rabbi. I can imagine Jesus rolling his eyes. I'm going to have nothing to do with this man. Nobody knows what it means to follow me. Nobody can see the kingdom of God, Jesus says, unless they are born from above. It can also be translated born again. Hold on. Hold on, Rabbi. Hold on. What are, how, are, how am I going to pull that off? I'm not a kid anymore, Jesus, for crying out loud. I'm an old guy. How do you expect me, who gets sore after running a couple miles the day before, to do pull this off? I mean, there's days when I even take some Metamucil to make sure that I'm healthy and strong. Maybe with a touch of bite. He doesn't stop there. He goes to the next level. Do you suppose that I'm going to enter into my mother's womb a second time? Do you realize how hard it is for me to climb the stairs, let alone climb that? Come on. I can't possibly make that happen. How am I going to do that? I can imagine Jesus at this point thinking, I have him right where I want him. So he says, you, you, you know about the wind, don't you? You can't control the wind, but you know it's there. But do you know where it comes from or where it goes? So it is with being born again. You see, there's nothing you can do to make it happen. You just know that it does happen. There's no amount of education that's going to help you with this one, Nicodemus. No badge of honor can get you there. No friends or influencers can deem this on you. No human is in charge of the Spirit because no child decides to be born. 
the gift of new life, the gift of birth from above, the gift of being born in the Spirit is this, just that, Nicodemus. It's a gift. You can't make it happen. A baby can't make themselves be born. It reminds me of uh, my first occurrence of of birth uh, happening in the hospital. I know that some of you have had some pretty harrowing experiences in the hospital. Uh, Thankfully, thanks be to God, uh, Beck and I's experience in the hospital were pretty normal. You know, for as normal as the excruciating pain and discomfort and intensity to the 28th degree it can be, it was normal. And I am fully aware that I, as a male pastor, am on walking on very thin ice because I have no idea what the discomfort and the pain and the intensity is like. But I do know that at the birth of our firstborn child, Eva, I was completely useless. I was overwhelmed, head spinning. I can't believe I'm going to become a father and seeing my wife in this position and all the things, the nurse and the doctors and the stuff and the... You know, there's just too much there for some of us. It's one of those moments that you're really grateful that you have a sister-in-law who is a nurse that could actually be of usefulness to your wife. But for all of my inadequacies, for both my nature as a man, but also my condition at the moment, I did have one place to shine in that hospital those first couple days of life. I could sign some paperwork. It was my signature that made her birth certificate possible. It was my signature that gave her a social security card that is locked up in our safe still today that she will use some five days in her entire life. Do you see what I'm doing here, ladies? I'm somehow taking the glory for the birth moment and putting it on the father. That's just not right. I'm sorry. Nevertheless, Eva's life was therefore official, right? She was not only born, but she had the documentation to prove it. Meanwhile, every single day of her life since then, we have known that she's alive. We don't need some piece of paperwork that's locked up in a safe to prove it. She is with us. Her presence is there. I loved what N.T. Wright, and who I'm borrowing from this morning, did with this passage when he said that sometimes us Christians think of our second birth or our birth from above similarly. We think of that moment when we became a Christian, that, that, that piece of paper that proves that we are a Christian as being the evidence, the proof that we have been born again, that we have been born from above. He said it would be something like Eva taking her birth certificate and putting it in a frame right at the entryway of our house so that every time she had a friend come over, she could say, hey guys, look, I'm alive. This piece of paper proves it. We don't need a piece of paper to prove that you are alive, Eva. Your very existence with us, your life, your health, your strength, your purpose that you exhibit is evidence that you have been born. I think Jesus uses the metaphor of birth to remind us of two things. One is that it's an act of God, that as children we can do nothing to make ourselves be born, that it's simply a gift that we as children receive. And the second is that our growth in faithfulness, our spiritual life, is the evidence that we have been born from above.
I said metaphor number one was that Christ, the light of Christ shines into the darkness of our lives. Metaphor number two, that it, it is through birth that we experience new life. What does it look like for us, though, to grow in our life of faithfulness? What does it mean for us to nurture this born-from-above spiritual life? I find it really interesting that Jesus uses uh, this obscure, maybe pretty unique image from uh, a long time ago of Moses holding up a staff or a pole with a snake on it as a sign for what it means to embrace a life uh, of being born from above. He's referencing a story from the book of Numbers. It's kind of an obscure passage. I'm sure Nicodemus would be proud of the fact that he knew of it, which is why he probably referenced it. But it's a story, it's at a low point in the story of the Israelites. They were turning away from God. They were disobeying the way of God. And God, like he does throughout the Old Testament, does something to kind of bring them back again. And he does, what he does is that he sends snakes into the wandering Israelite camp. And these snakes are uh, deadly and they are causing all kinds of upheaval in the camp. And so finally, the Israelites turn to Moses and say, Moses, spare us. Have God save us from these snakes. And in a really weird story, to be honest, probably why it's so obscure, uh, God asked Moses to create a pole, a bronze pole, and then put an image of a snake on top of it so that if the Israelites were bitten by one of the snakes, they would look to the pole and they would be healed immediately. The pole would be a symbol to the Israelites for healing. Now, I'm not a biblical, great, awesome, most extraordinary biblical scholar like our Suzanne McDonald, who's a part of our congregation. And I'm not always quick to pick up what Tim Brown said in my seminary class of these echoes in Scripture where one passage is relating to the other. But this one, the irony of a serpent as a sign of healing, even I didn't, this one wasn't lost on me this time. Serpents. Serpents are the ones that are the signs of deception, of darkness, of evil, maybe even of death, right? Most famously, it was the serpent in the garden that deceived Adam and Eve, that caused Eve and Adam to sin. God then curses the serpent. Why is the serpent the sign of healing? Yet there in the book of Numbers, God commands Moses to hold up a pole with a snake on it as a sign of healing. You know what's really fascinating about this? Is that we still use this obscure symbol today. Have you seen this? This is the sign of medicine that we use over and over and over. There's another one with two serpents, but this one's the one serpent. It's the exact, the first recorded uh, story of a, a pole with a snake on it from healing is in Numbers, the book of Numbers. Can you believe that? Come on. Uh, so what does this mean? That's the question that I'm trying to answer with you right now. I've lost my place. I'm per- I apologize. The, number, the, 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 the snake on top of the pole as a sign of healing is an example of what neoplanting calls like cures like. It might be similar to the way that we look to a sign of crucifixion as a sign of new life for us. Or maybe it's like uh, what we're going through right now. 
if you are living right now, you can't go a day without hearing about vaccines. And no matter what your stance is on the COVID vaccine and its role in society, I think most of us, at least maybe even all of us, can agree that vaccines have been a significant historical advancement in modern medicine today. They have saved potentially millions of lives. And this is probably most famous that some of you have, were able to even experience this in the invention of the polio vaccine some years ago. Jonas Salks is the doctor who discovered the polio vaccine, and what he found was that if he injected a small amount of the disease of polio into the arm, the body would go into overdrive, creating antibodies to fight that disease. What he discovered was that if you gave just a little bit of it, this overdrived uh, body with antibodies would be able to fight the disease and therefore uh, create a body that is equipped to handle bigger doses of the disease and uh, for further exposures later on. A vaccine, uh, in the traditional sense, is a little bit of the disease that cures the risk of a lot of disease. Like cures like. So it is with the good news of the gospel. One man's assumption of sin on our behalf cures the sin problem for the entire world. One man's assumption of death on a cross is, makes it possible that death is no longer a reality for all people or the final reality for all people. Like cures like. The good news of the most famous, John chapter 3.16, is that all who believe will have eternal life. Yes, but the supreme irony is that that new life comes through death. Our rebirth, our being born from above, our spiritual life is nurtured when we, too, put the things of this world in our life to death. When we, too, look to the cross, the symbol of one man's assumption of all of our brokenness and all of our sin. Not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done, we experience new life. Metaphor number three, life comes via death. Halfway through this passage, you might have noticed that Nicodemus fades into the background of Jesus' famous words, Unlike the immediate conversions of many of John's other characters who encounter Jesus, Nicodemus's last words are, how can this be? We're left to wonder, what happened to Nicodemus? Did he realize God's love for him in the light of Christ that shined into the darkness of that first night? Maybe that wondering is John's point. Maybe this story is less about Nicodemus and more about the reader, like you and I. Maybe we're invited to wrestle with Nicodemus about who is this man? Who is this man who offers light into the darkness of our lives? Who is this man who uh, gives the gift of being born again to all of us? Who is this man whose invitation to life comes through dying to self? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.
In our response this morning, I invite you to stand, and in this next song, um, let's stand together. In this next song, we will um, sing of this, who this man is, this Emmanuel, God with us, our deliverer, our savior.
Who is this Jesus who brings a light, who offers new life and brings about that new life through death? As you consider that this week, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen. Go in peace.